Welcome to Voices Amped. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie Clark. And I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig, and we are your hosts. Voices Amped is a place for us to share space and lift the voices of artists, activists, community leaders, and organizers, all of whom have inspired us and our work. For any Ampers who aren't familiar with our work, we are Voices Amplified, formerly known as The Girl Project. You can learn more about our arts advocacy work or support us by going to VoicesAmplified.net. Thanks for listening. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise. Today, we talk to our friend and collaborator and incredible womanist scholar, Dr. Shamara Kwachi. We talk about her work of elevating stories of Black women and girls that examine their power and agency in oppressive spaces, including her work on Wish to Live, the hip-hop feminism pedagogy reader, and Soul Hot, Saving Our Lives, Hearing Our Truths. Shamara inspires us with her stories of family, claiming your creative self and resilience. Please enjoy Dr. Shamara Jewel Kwachi. Welcome and thanks for listening. This is Voices Amped. I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig. And I'm Ellie Clark, and we are your hosts. Well, we are so excited to introduce you to Dr. Shamara Jewel Kwachi. <laughs> now we're going to brag about you for a little bit, Shamara. That's okay. how we start. Okay. Shamara <laughs> is currently residing in Atlanta, Georgia. She has a PhD at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign from two, in 2011. Shamara is a womanist, scholar, educator with interdisciplinary interests at the intersections of race, class, gender, sexuality, ethnography, performance, and pedagogy. Damn. <laughs> For real. So much. So much. She is especially interested in the stories Black women and girls tell that examine their power and agency in oppressive spaces. She co-edited Wish to Live, the hip-hop feminism pedagogy reader. She's co-written, starred, and produced in several ethnographic performances based on the lives of Black women and girls. She has also published works on qualitative methods, hip-hop feminist pedagogy, and is currently working on a monograph that examines Black women and girls pedagogy and praxis of love and labor. She serves as co-organizer for Saving Our Lives, Hear Our Truths, Soul Hot, a space dedicated to Black girlhood celebration, particularly as it relates to the arts and culture. We were introduced to Shamaro through our collaborator, Margaret McGladry, through the University of Kentucky. She has been on the Voices Amplified team as a community advocacy director, lead guest artist, and guest artist for the Girl Project of Kentucky, and worked with us on the Jump Project. She serves as a board member and program director for the Initiative for the Creative Arts, an organization that uses hip hop, beat making, and music production to engage youth in social justice and social emotional development and learning. And she's a fellow water sign. And you're, yes, are I'm you an Aquarius? I'm a Scorpio. Oh, you're a Scorpio. That's <laughs> right. Don't hold it against me. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> Help, help. 
like to have our Scorpios on Voices Amped. Because <laughs> you never know where it's going to go. You never know where it's going to go. <laughs> this is so, so true. Yeah. So I think, I think Vanessa and I kind of have to ask because it's, it fascinated us when we were reading your bio, when we were announcing Voices Amplified and the podcast, what made you adopt the word womanist yeah. over anything else? It's such a beautiful word. Yeah, Alice Walker has this, and I'm going to butcher it, so let me, I'm going to look it up so that I don't misquote Alice Walker. Womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender, right? Mm -hmm. And so womanism, and you know, Alice Walker is the first person that a lot of people go to, but Katie Cannon, um, she's no longer with us, but kind of developed the entire field of, or kind of put womanism on the map in terms of theology and so womanism for me is a title that fits better than feminists because even though black black feminists are concerned with race with class with gender I'm deeply concerned with those things for kind of black people in the diaspora and it's and freedom is not just about freedom from um capitalism, freedom from, you know, all of the oppressions that we kind of go to in our society, but also in terms of your spirit and being able to kind of look at the historical things that have fed and nurtured black people's spirit throughout the diaspora. And so womanism does that um, and centers that, honestly, to move in the way of spirit, to be present with spirit. Um, and, and I'm talking about Katie Cannon in particular is who I go to. So yeah, that fit better for me than, than feminist. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I like that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I like that a lot. So Shamara, you know, we, we have shared space with you in various projects yes. and, um, which it's kind of interesting. I was, as I, as I was thinking about, about how all of that developed, I was thinking about how it just kind of felt like you came into working with us on the girl project, the jump project. And you were just, it, you were just so naturally a fit. It's like, I don't remember working at it. I don't remember. Like, it's like you were just there. I was trying to go back through like how that all went down. I remember meeting up with you, you know, Margaret introduced you. And then just, it was like, suddenly this was just a, a glorious fit. Um, right. Do, I, do you, what do you remember? About I was trying that? to do the same thing. And so I was like, okay, I remember Margaret saying, you have to meet Vanessa and Ellie. Like you have to meet them. Um, to talk about the girl project. I remember us meeting at the Starbucks in Chevy Starbucks. Chase. Yes. <laughs> and then I remember like everything else is kind of a blur from there. Like I remember coming out to the theater um, and then everything else kind of was a blur. I was like, I'll sit in on auditions. And so I was at auditions. I'll, you know, like it just, I don't, we were at Blackbird. Like I'm, I'm really trying to go through and it yeah. just, it fit. Yeah, you are absolutely right. It's such a, um, welcome energy and in the room always just 
I love having you in the room. Um, so I'm excited today to kind of dive in more into what it is that you have done with your career, because yeah. as I've been reading more and more, it's just so fascinating to me. So one thing I discovered is that you started off as a business major. Yeah, I started off as a business major. I, so I feel like I did all of the, what, what, um, immigrant children and like children of the great migration, like first generation of the great migration in California and the West coast do like, I'm either going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a business person. So at first I was like, I'm going to be in high school. I'm going to be a pediatrician. Got to my first year in bio and was like, yeah, no, I'm good. Um, <laughs> you know, like, no, it was, it wasn't, it was chemistry. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm good we're done here. Um, so I was like, I know I don't want to go to law school. It was something about being a lawyer that didn't speak to me. I was like, I don't know that I want to be defending people and having to, you know, constantly be proving, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is mm -hmm. on behalf of someone else. Um, like one person singular. So I was like, let me, let me think about business. My father had owned a business before um, you know, I had been around like small business owners in my life. The people that are my block that I grew up with, like some of them were small business owners. And so I was like, maybe I can do that. Mm -hmm. And I was in class one day, I was in a marketing class and I will never forget. I don't remember the professor's name, but in the class, he says, um, the bottom line, someone asked him a question about ethics in terms of marketing and he was like nothing about marketing is really ethical because you're getting people to buy something that you know you're trying to tell them that they need to buy something and they probably don't chances are they probably don't right um and the person was like the student kind of countered well how is that ethical right mm -hmm. like how is any business ethical and he was like the goal of business like the bottom line of business is profit like to make the most money that you can with expending the smallest amount of, right, in terms of means of production. And so it was like, cause the bottom line is you wanna make the dollar, that's it. Like you don't, and so that was his answer to ethics. And I was like, yeah, I'm in the wrong major. <laughs> like if the bottom, you know, who gives a crap about people? Who gives a crap yeah. about, like the bottom line is your sale and your dollar. And that was it. Wow. I was like, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. And I remember, you know, I always had like a special interest in, in how human beings live with each other, um, how they see themselves. And so I tried a couple psych classes and then sociology, I had a psychosocial class and I knew then I was like, okay, I, this is what I like. So I started off if people in the abridged version of my career, I tell people I was a sociologist in the former life. Um, but then I double majored in social and ethnic studies in particular African-American studies. And so that's what spoke to me. And about junior year, I was like, okay, I don't know what job sociologists have though. What am I gonna do? I don't know, you know, and I grew up, I was that nerdy kid that grew up playing school with my cousin. So we would sit on my grandmother's porch and we would play school. I did that too. I did that too. I did okay, it. Great. Yeah. See, great. Okay, because I was like, you know, I hear people say they play with their Barbies or they were outside, but very few people say like, I played school. Um, 
So yeah, I'll in between, put- you know, doing uh, our own productions of Grease in the backyard. Right. Right. I played school. Yeah. So that was in between our like dance routines and reenacting <laughs> stuff. We would play school. So I was like, I love teaching. Um, I, you know, I was that kid that had to do when my mother couldn't afford summer camp, I would do va- vacation Bible school. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, be in charge of little kids. And so I was like, I could teach. They seem to like me, you know, kids seem to like me. I can teach. And I took a class. It was a comparative uh, sociology class in terms of race. And I wrote this amazing, I thought, amazing paper (laughs) on um, the comparison between, I think, Indigenous people and African-Americans, Africans, right? And so at the end of the paper, we get the papers back in class. And at the end of the paper, like I, I don't pay attention to all the comments throughout the paper. Now as a professor, I'm like that labor that that professor did, my God. But I turned right to the back to see what the, uh, the grade was. And it was an A. And my professor wrote a note set that said, come see me after class. I'd like to talk to you. Uh-oh. <laughs> right, like what? <laughs> what? Um, and she asked me, she's like, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to be a teacher. And she said, have you ever thought about being a professor? And I was like, no. She was like, you should follow. In particular, she was a white woman. She was like, you need to follow and talk to all of the women of color on this campus and ask them what it's like to be a professor, like shadow them. Um, And so in my major, I had already been taking all the classes with the women of color faculty anyway, but I made it a point to find the ones outside of our department. So I was in dance classes, I was in theater classes, I was in a photography, I was trying, you know, making the connection, one, just seeing how they were in the classroom, um, because there were so few of them. I had been, my college career up until that point had been dominated by male professors. And so I wanted to see what it was like. And I was like, okay, I can do this. And so that's how I decided I was going to go to grad school and become a professor. But had she, you know, I still didn't quite know what professors did until I was in grad school. But yeah, that's kind of how I started. And when did your focus kind of um, become more on the stories of Black women and girls and examining those, the power and oppressive spaces? Yeah. um, I had, so at Illinois, I was in education policy studies at the University of Illinois, um, Champaign-Urbana. The department now, I think, is ed policy org leadership, so what they call EPOL, but I was in education policy studies, EPS, and our department um, had tracks, so you could do history of ed, social of ed, and I, you know, still very much interested in in sociology, also took a lot of history classes, and it was really this big gaping hole that I found in really exploring black women's histories that I was like, okay, I I know I wanna do a project that centers like a historical look at black women. Mm -hmm. Um, And and at that time it was in education. And so in shaping my dissertation and trying to figure out how to shape my dissertation um, to do both, to, to be situated in this historical look, but also in this contemporary, I decided to do oral history narratives. And I had um, 
and it ended up being really life history narratives. So for all the academics out there, I do know the difference, but um, (laughs) the difference, right, being that a life history somebody is taking you through usually um, oral histories insist on chronology. I could start anywhere with somebody's life history, contemporary, Mm -hmm. um, and then write it in, in a particular way. And so I chose about eight women to, to tell me their life story. And I had these really poignant interviews. Tell me what it was like for you growing up um, in school. Tell me what it was like growing up in your family. Tell me your birth story, right? Like everybody is so, you know, my, my, my grandma, and that comes from my grandmother because she would drill into me that she was like, girl, your birth story is interesting. And would tell me this story about like the day that I was born, all the stuff leading up to it. And so I was like, I'm going to use that with people and ask them, like, do they know the story of their birth? And so it became the project became something that I could kind of see them in and they could take me to their girlhood. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting watching people when you interview them, um, the things that trigger them in good ways and in bad ways. So the memories that, that they, you know, tell you and the stuff that it brings up was fascinating. Mm-hmm. And in the moment too, when the people are telling the story, particularly if it's a good story, I saw people who were guarded before, who were, um, you know, a little reserved before when they went back to that moment in their girlhood where they were having fun, like their face would change, their <laughs> shoulders would change. And so I was like, there is something here Mm -hmm. and I knew that I wanted um to continue to do that in my work to be able to to move back and forth between those time periods and then I was also you mentioned soul hot that's also so that happens while I'm in grad school Mm -hmm. and soul hot happens while I'm in grad school so I'm doing work with saving our lives here our truth that centers black girlhood celebration so I get to see black girls right Mm -hmm. you know I'm there two times a week organizing with girls using art for them to tell their stories, Mm -hmm. the things that they're excited about. So I get to, you know, be in that space with actual black girls in the moment. And then Mm -hmm. I can spend time with these older black women um, too. And and Soul Hot is an intergenerational space. And so Mm -hmm. we call ourselves home girls. Mm -hmm. The the adults call ourselves home girls (laughs) and the girls little homies, right? And so, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, the the home girls, we're together, we're with the girls. And you can see us, like the permission that they're being in their bodies gives us to be in ours. Well, we probably haven't been in our body all day, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And, and you know, them coming from after school, we made a pact purposely before we started meeting with them. Like, we're not going to police them, right? We're not going to tell them to sit down. We're not going to tell them to shut up. You know, we're going to allow them to be themselves. And just doing that, right? I mean, and it took us going through like, what were the things that you know you hated as a young person that adults used to do to you? <laughs> right? Like, how, yeah. what were the things that you could not stand? And we had to sit with that and then purposely not replicate those things mm-hmm. when we were with them, right? And so it was the moving between those two worlds. So I'm writing during the day and then I'm going to so hot in the afternoon. So I spent a lot of time with Black girl stories and they're so rich and they're so ripe. Um, 
we saw in the girl project, the girls come with a lot, They do. right? They have a lot to say. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it felt like a really, so back to womanism, I described the first time I left Soul Hot to a friend as like, I felt like I'd been to church, mm. right? It was a spiritual experience. You can be in your body. We can sing together, right? So the making of a joyful noise, our joyful noise, whatever our joyful noise was at that time, that's what we're doing. We're present. We do an actual instance circle where we call the names of the people who had passed away. So we're calling in our ancestors. And so that to me, right? Like that was, I knew I was like, okay, if, I, if I'm gonna dedicate my career to anything and think of it long-term as a scholar, as a researcher, as a performer, as an artist, what am I gonna be happy exploring for the rest of my life? Mm. And that was it. I was like, okay. This is it. Can you think of a, is, is there a particular um, story from one of the, the girls that you worked with in Soul Hot that was particularly transformative or, you know, that you, that you saw yeah. occur during that yeah. time? Oh my gosh. So in Champaign, I organized Soul Hot for probably about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And then I actually was doing Soul Hot in Lexington. We called it something else, but there was, we were doing that at Lexington at William Wells Brown. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. And so if I had to, there's, you know, across space and time. So in Champaign, there was a girl and I won't say her name, her real name. Um, Let me think of a pseudonym, Didi. Um, (laughs) So Didi and I, like from the first moment of So Hot, probably the, one of the first sessions, she reminded me a lot of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, as a kid, just kind of bigger than all the other girls in terms of height, in terms of like size. Um, she had a smart mouth, but you know, for me, I was very quiet. So my smart mouth was internal, but hers was external, but that was fine. <laughs> like, right. It was fine. So, um, so that kind of connection and, you know, I, re- I remember her sizing up the adult. right and not in a way like I'm gonna you know challenge you I just want to see if you're gonna be honest Mm. Mm. um about who you are and if you're gonna be honest with us so she was kind of mentally sizing us up and I could see her kind of you know for as vocal as she might have been sometimes I could see her watching and so that drew me to her um and I can't remember what it was. It was like where we, the moment where we clicked, I think I told, she was, she did try and challenge me one time. Like, and not in a way, again, like not in a way that was disrespectful or any way that I saw disrespectful or rude. She was like, I'm not gonna do that. And I was like, that's fine, I'm gonna do it. Like, I'm gonna do whatever I asked you to do anyway. Um, and so she was like, oh, you're gonna, this isn't a, like the girls, you guys have to do this and we don't have to do this. I was like, no, I'm gonna do it. And so she was like, okay. Um, and kind of rolled her eyes. <laughs> and I remember I pulled her in for a hug and she like pretended to kind of wrestle out and then she grabbed me and gave me a hug. And so that kind of, that moment, um, 
I, that connection was there. But I mean, I saw her, we saw each other through a lot. I started to come to her basketball game. She invited me to a game. I would come to her games. Um, and when she started high school, it was, you know, kind of the, the stuff that teenagers go through trying to figure out who they are um, and where they fit. And she had always been a good student, always been active in like sports and stuff like that. And, and girls were teasing her. Mm. And I remember her saying to me, like I came and we hung out together. Um, we were at Chili's for those that are in Champaign on uh, Prospects. <laughs> and she, uh, she asked me, we were sitting there and she asked me if I would be mad at her if she got into a fight. And I was like, no, if you're defending yourself, you know, I wouldn't be, and I asked her what's going on. And she tells me like, people are calling me, you know, girls are calling me out in the hallway, yelling at me, calling me fat, calling me black, calling me ugly. And I can't, she's like, I can't not, you know, if I cower to them, then they're gonna keep doing this to me. Mm -hmm. um, she's felt like the only option was like, I'm gonna have to fight. I'm gonna, at some point, it's gonna move to the point where I'm gonna have to stand up for myself. Um, and I was like, okay, I won't be mad at you. And so I wrote a piece. I actually wrote a piece about this conversation. Hmm. And so in the in the piece, I say like, I'm taking, I'm at the, you know, I'm at the restaurant in my mind taking off my earrings. Like we gonna fight this little girl together because she ain't you know, like, <laughs> like I'm ready. But you know, I also knew that the school district had been sued by black parents for race-based tracking. Mm. Um, so there's a history, right, of profiling black children in school, black girls, black boys in school. And so that was also in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. I know what could happen to her. You could be, you know, they had, there's a zero tolerance policy. Doesn't matter what the fight was about. Doesn't matter that adults sat around and let somebody be verbally abused all this time, right? Um, there's a zero tolerance policy. If you, if you fight, you're just, you're expelled. And you can no longer go to regular, what they call regular K through 12 schools. You're automatically put into a continuation school. And mm -hmm. so, and I know the statistics about what continuation schools kind of lead to, mm -hmm. right? This is the pipeline to prison, right? Yeah. Um, and so I have to tell her, like, let's, let's think about, yes, I wouldn't be mad at you, but let's think about what, what's at stake. And we have to sit there, both of us, and think about what's at stake. I'm not telling her the, the things that I'm thinking about are at stake, but I remind her about basketball. Like, you won't be able to do this anymore. You won't be able to cheer anymore. You won't be able to be on the dance team. You won't be at school with your friends that you've known all your life. I have to give her, you know, these things to, to fight for on the other side. And so that, I think that's, one of the main moments that stick out to me with with the girls with one do of you the know girls. how ultimately like where she's ended up or what she's doing at this point yes um she is in springfield she was in college um working her way through school she came out and um her family wasn't happy about that and so she yeah, it, it was a harder road for her, 
but she was working her way through school and then the pandemic hit and she texted me like at the start of quarantine and said like okay I'm gonna stop out of school because I gotta pay for this it's a pandemic I can't juggle you know most of my classes are online but she's working and she says she's saving money to go back so when things open up she can finish her degree and so she she wants to be a teacher well, I wonder who inspired that. <laughs> so I, well, I kind of wanted this question to just be, tell me everything about the hip hop feminism pedagogy reader, but maybe we'll, if you could just break down kind of the ideals behind yeah. it and maybe the process of, yeah. of writing that book or co-writing it. Yeah. Um, that came when I was in graduate school, my mentor was Nicole Brown had gotten this contract and was like, okay, we're gonna write a book on hip hop, on hip hop feminism, like the lessons that we've learned since doing Soul Hot. Mm. And we're gonna, you know, ask, solicit for chapters from people who have done Soul Hot, but also people who have just been doing the work of thinking about and working with girls, particularly in Champaign. Um, and so, and she purposely chose graduate students to work with and publish. That's something that a lot of professors do not do. Um, and so she, she was like, okay, we're gonna do this and we're gonna take the lessons that we've learned. And a, a lot of people think about hip hop feminism. Um, when they hear hip hop, they think about music or they think about like mainstream, what I would call mainstream hip hop, like whatever's on the radio. We're not talking about the stuff that's on the radio. <laughs> We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about um, graffiti art, but we are talking about art. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not talking about, so hip hop feminism to define it is really using the analysis that's in like these hip hop songs. So we're using the analysis of race, of class, of gender, of like a spatial analysis. So a lot of rappers come from particular regions or areas, but they're telling stories about those areas. We're using the, the analysis that hip hop has given us, right? To be able to talk about the social problems. So we're using that. We're talking about um, art and how hip hop made its own art form as protest, as a counter narrative, mm -hmm. right? And so we're using that to talk about the things that we've learned as girls and women. And so, you know, folks have all kinds of chapters in there. There's conversations about sex in terms of how girls are taught about, what girls are taught about sex, if they're taught about sex, how they're taught about sex, how they're taught about to think about themselves. Um, my chapter is a chapter from an interview that I did with someone growing up in Oakland and what we would consider um, the hip hop era. So late seventies, early eighties. And she tells me, you know, I tell the story of her young life coming to age, she's 17 and she gets pregnant and her mother makes her get an abortion. So I write that story that she gave me about not having, you know, the loss of agency over her body. Mm -hmm. Um, she also was a dancer and she had gotten in school to be a dance major in New York. And 
she also did, you know, she wanted to have both choices to dance and to keep her child. But her mother made the choice for her. And so, you know, it's uh, it allows us again to use art, to use storytelling, to tell stories that center black women, that center women of color, that center women. So it was, I'm always happy. We just made, Ruth Nicole and I, Wish to Live, made somebody's reading list on ebony.com. Savannah Taylor, shout out to Savannah Taylor mm-hmm. from <laughs> ebony.com. Um, and we were, I, so Ruth Nicole texted me like, girl, <laughs> look, awesome. look at us. Um, and so, you know, the goal of creating that wasn't necessarily to talk about kind of, again, the rap music that we hear on the radio, but to really use the critical tools of analysis that hip hop has given us mm-hmm. to think about black women and women of color's position in this society. I mean, I just watched all of me, Billy Holiday. Yes. The movie? Yes. See that. And- I just had no, you know, I had no idea. I, it was devastating to watch Mm -hmm. that movie and to think that, you know, I'm an actor, to think that Audra Day, uh, that's her first first time acting. I was like, who are you? Yeah. Anyway, beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, you have to watch it. Beautiful to learn that story about what she was doing with music and how terrified. America was of it. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So Shamar, I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of, I'm trying to wrap my brain around all of the things that, that you do and that all of the things that are in your arsenal. So we haven't talked yet. You know, I, I have looked at you very much as a creative writer that, you know, dear Mr. Prompt is one of my absolute favorites. So where did kind of the poetry and creative writing fit into all of this? Yeah. So one of the things that I loved about being in Soul Hot is that we were going to tell our stories. The girls were going to tell their stories. So there was always something creative at the center of every time we met. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if it was write a poem to your older self or write a poem to your younger self, depending on how old they were, right? That might've been six or seven, but still they had stories to tell, right? Um, that really gave me, so one, so I'll say one that gave me permission to really be fully free in creativity, right? To own kind of all the things that I felt like I was forced to let go of. I was a dancer as a kid. Um, I was told I didn't have a dancer's body. So I, I put that down. Sounds right? familiar. <laughs> yeah, I put it down, right? I was told that I didn't write in the proper way. So I put down writing. Like, so, and so, you know, all of the things that I was kind of forced to put down and really by adults, honestly, mm-hmm. um, and not forced to, but internalize their messaging, right? That I wasn't enough. Um, and so decided that they were gonna, that was right. I didn't have this or I couldn't do that. Um, and so hot, being in so hot and watching the girls just explore all of their creativity mm-hmm. from dance. We opened in a circle dancing. Beautiful. 
So that was how we, you know, came together. That's how we knew it was time to, to do so hot. People, we were at the YMCA and I, if I was late, I was like, oh, did I make it yet? But I could hear them clapping, <laughs> and chant, you know, singing from the park. So I was like, okay, I'm like right on time. I'll run upstairs. And I got to be in my body, right? So the girls are inviting me to let go and shed because they're doing it too, right? Because we've asked them to let go. And so doing that was wonderful. And then I had written a paper about Soul Hot and I was going to present it at um, the National Women's Studies Association Conference. And Ruth McColl in her genius way, because she is, she is the architect, we call her the architect and the visionary of Soul Hot. She said, what if we perform our papers? Huh. And I was like, <laughs> well, what I had written wasn't my favorite thing. <laughs> I mean, it was, but it wasn't, right? So I was like, okay, I'm in. And so me, Ruth Nicole, and Candy Taft, Claudine Taft, she's at Vassar. Um, I'm sorry, at Vanderbilt. And Ruth Nicole, who's now at MSU, we performed our papers on SOHOT. So I'm telling the story of something that's happened in Soul Hot that was at once in a research paper, very dry, right? Mm -hmm. Like very, this data point, this data point, this data point. But now I can bring to life these data points. Mm -hmm. I can tell them in a very rich way. And because they were like, because all three of us were in, I was like, well, if, we, if this ship is going down, at least I'm going down, you know, with two other people. <laughs> we're going down together um, but I really trusted that we you know the process of creating something together that we would we would fill in for each other we would hold each other down and we, it would be fine if, if nobody else liked it that, I think that was our what we went into if nobody else liked it we liked it <laughs> that's right you know at the end of the day these are people at a conference um, some of them sure might be big shots, but at the end of the day, right, we have to be, we have to hold our integrity to what we know yeah. is amazing, right? We won't, cause we we're again, we're telling the girls the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we have to do this. So we did it. And I was like, okay, if I could perform the rest of my research <laughs> for the rest <laughs> of my life, again, right. It's that rush from performing that I hadn't felt in a long time. Yeah. Um, it just felt good to make something with other people because mm -hmm. research to me had felt so isolating. And so it was another way for me to take what I did in isolation mm -hmm. and come together collaboratively. And, you know, you don't feel that often. At, if you've ever been to an academic conference and had people traditionally read papers to you, you know, you don't, you don't often feel that and so and people said that afterwards they were like oh my god this was the best experience ever so basically we need to we gotta we gotta get out there that's a whole new thing we can try ellie we gotta get out there and get with those academics and the three and of us should yeah. go to academic yeah. conferences and be like let us bring your life light yes. Yes. Right. ia is a good conference we can talk about that later but imagine america <laughs> have y'all heard of imagining america I don't think we'll so. We'll talk about it later. Yes. Okay. We'll talk about it later. Um, you are Shamara. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm absorbing everything we're talking about. I'm still thinking back to like how you seamlessly fit into the girl project. We are also in the throes of examining white supremacy in business structure. Mm 
um, and some of the results of that and everything you did coming into the jump project, which is just us moms performing Tanya Torp was our first guest. So you can go back and listen about that if you'd like, but the girl project, so many teachers and artists we reach out to say, okay, well, what do you want from me? Like, what am I, what am I creating with the girls? What do you expect? What are, what are we performing? Am I supposed to create like a lot of tell me the outcome outcome. Right. And it's not negative because we are, we're paying people good money to come in and they know this is resulting in a performance, but you very much are one of the several artists we have that would come into the space with no expectation, but just to offer space to the girls. Yeah. I will ask you to write, let you write with me. And I'm going to hold the space without expectation and without time limits and without being result oriented and how that seamlessly always produced something beautiful that we could perform your patience and your um, resistance to resistance to maybe putting, putting results on things um, and giving time for laughter and conversation and inviting it. You're an incredible, incredible educator. And you are to me, the epitome of what a true artist is someone who collaborates and makes space and knows something beautiful will come from that mm-hmm. instead of trying to force something. Yeah. So I'm just putting that out there that yeah. all these women, all these girls, us, we are so lucky to be working with you. Um, yeah. And that makes me happy because I have, it's, it's hard for me to see myself as an artist because I think of artists, which is so crazy, right? Um, I think of artists as like discipline, always working on their craft, like all the things that, you know, um, but in a particular way, like it has to look a particular way. And so I think I keep thinking of myself as not an artist because I think it needs to look a particular way. Yeah. But I appreciate you saying that because the last kind of year and a half and Sean, um, Renee Soul, Sean is my partner. You guys know Sean, LaShondra Hill. She you know, us being together. So she, this is the first time I've been in a relationship with another artist, with another person that really leans into their creativity and enjoys it. And she was like, no, look, you are a writer. So go write. I am curious about dance though. Yeah. Can you tell me some, uh, a little bit about that, about that background? Yeah, I did African. So I went to an all black Christian um, school in Los Angeles. That's no longer in existing is existence called United World. And it was founded by two black women. Um, and they just were like, look, we're going to center black culture, in particular African culture, um, but we are going to center black diasporic culture. And so we would have dance. And it wasn't just like, okay, the girls are gonna go take dance. No, like everybody is gonna take dance actually. Um and it was what I guess kids would now and teachers now would call a special. So it wasn't always, you know, it wasn't something that happened all the time because they had to pay these folks to come in from the outside. Um, and we would have at least like once or twice a month, we would have African dance class. And so I just remember falling in love. My father has a drum. My father is from Ghana. And so he had a drum in the house when I was growing up and he would play sometimes. And I was just kind of dancing around you know, 
um, when he would play. But at school, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm five years old when I have my first African dance class, four or five years old. And I was like, this is it. Like, this is what my dad's been doing at home. And they're going to teach me the moves that go with it. So let me pay attention. Right. <laughs> um, so when I stopped going to school there, my mom at my, the, at the elementary school that I did go to after that in Brentwood in Bel Air had an after-school dance class. And my after-school, my teacher, it, again, it was specials, you could pay. Um, and my mom found some money. It was also free babysitting for her because um, so, it was a, an extra hour after school. So I will never forget, my teacher's name was Mimi and she was Eastern European and she loved me. And I had taken, I had gone to a couple dance classes before in the city and I could tell the way that people were looking at me that I wasn't the right body hmm. for a dance class. And so I didn't, I just kind of told my mom I didn't want to go anymore. But when that came up at my school, was after school, there were, and there were also no performance expectations, right? Because when you, a dance academy, you're going to have to perform. Most, most of the time, you're going to have to perform. And so I was like, yeah, I don't want that, especially when people are already telling me I'm in the wrong body. So this felt lower stakes, right? Mm -hmm. This is after school. I, I, I somehow knew what the stakes were. Like, this is after school. There's no performance expectation. This is just for us to learn. And Mimi was like, let me see you do first position. And strangely enough, like I knew all the positions from my African dance teacher. So she taught us African dance, but she also taught us ballet, right? Like in terms of stance too. Um, and she was like, okay, like, you know, you know some things. And it was probably the second time we had dance class. And I can't remember what I did, like a grand jeté. I can't remember what I did, right? Um, but Mimi was like, everybody follow Shamara. That was excellent. You <laughs> saw how her feet were pointed. That was excellent. And so, you know, I had some training. Um, a friend of mine reminds me every couple of years that she has this uh, talent show video. And if I wanted to stay out of circulation, she was like, I'm just waiting, right? For when you like, for real, for real, or somewhere like you've done something great or you've done something crazy. Either way, I got this tape and people are gonna see it of you doing, uh, being in the talent show. Choreograph I want I to see it. I had choreographed this whole number, right? To Rhythm Nation. And everybody, what what is, so, so I'll, I'll say Mimi helps with that, right? So she was like, you can like try new things. And so I, I signed up for the talent show. Again, remember I said there were no performance expectations of this after school class. But Mimi, <laughs> when she said I could do that, like whatever it was, my toe was excellently pointed. I was like, well, then I'm going all the way. Let's hit the talent show. So I signed up for the talent show. I used the stuff that I learned in class, the technique that I learned in class. Um, remembered things from African dance and choreographed a whole routine in Rhythm Nation. And I would practice on the yard every day after school until my mom came. I Love borrowed that. a tape recorder from somebody and like all, I wasn't, like there was no where in my mind where like, maybe people shouldn't see you openly rehearse. Like maybe you want to surprise them. <laughs> the talent show. There was none of that. By the end, like we had practiced, I think I practiced for a month every day after school. By the end, everybody on the yard knew the dance. Yes. 
Like every, everyone knew the eight counts. Um, and I did it. And it was amazing. I, and wow. so she's like, have that tape. <laughs> Somewhere there's that tape. But I mean, those are the things that stick out. So like I had, again, undergrad, um, took some dance classes from Anna Scott, who is a scholar of, um, in particular, Afro-Brazilian dance, mm-hmm. but also some West African dance. And I ended up getting... So I was in that class, worked with her. We performed at the end of the class because that was her expectation for us. And she said, I wrote this grant with you in mind. And they're going to give you a fellowship. I'm an undergrad. This is like senior year of undergrad. They're going to give you this fellowship um, that's going to go towards your tuition and for you to buy books. But you have to help me create this community performance Hmm. with kids so we have to tell this story with Africa so you're going to help me co-teach these children so we're going to learn the choreography first I'm going to give you some space to do a little choreography of your own and then we're going to teach this to kids and we're going to perform it like that was a part of the fellowship it's called the Gluck Fellowship I don't know if uh, University of California Riverside still has that but Hmm. I was like okay right so again I think you know a lot of it feels like happenstance mm-hmm. because again, for me, art was like, okay, this is the thing. I'm going to do the thing that makes me happy. Sociology and ethnic studies, that makes me happy. But I also know that I have to get a job with this. There was something about being an artist that felt unstable. Mm. Um, it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I know it is, especially, especially for people, you know, the expectation for me, my parents didn't go to college. Um, my mother worked for the post office and then eventually became an RN and my father was in the military and then, um, started his own business, but then ended up in like a franchise and just kind of moved around job to job to job. And so I was like, I know I need something stable and art doesn't feel stable of the three choices, doctor, lawyer, (laughs) or a business person, right? doesn't feel stable. And so if I, if I, I always tell people, if I had to do it all over again, I probably would have majored in theater or I probably would have majored um, in creative writing. I took a screen, a script, a screenwriting class with a friend of mine who's now like an amazing writer. I think she just Mm -hmm. won um, an image award, an NAACP image award. Mm -hmm. She, and she was nominated for a Golden Globe, um, Erica Johnson. And so She's done amazing work. And I remember taking classes with her. Mm-hmm. I think we took two screenwriting classes, one or two screenwriting classes together. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what I was doing. But she was like, girl, let's take this class together. Okay. <laughs> like, I need a happy class. So they were like, I would call them my happy class. I need a happy class. Great. I'll do that. So did your parents come here together or did they meet here? It was your, did your dad immigrate here? Girl. Can you- Will you tell us your tea? <laughs> so um, my parents, and I write about this in my book, Simaran. Um, so my parents met on a bus stop, y'all, in the 70s. All right. So my, my mother took the, in, in Los Angeles, my mother took, she was taking the bus home from work. 
And my dad drove by and offered her a ride. And she said, no. And probably Good. not, uh, probably not no. It was probably something before that no. Um, <laughs> he, kept, he kept coming by, he kept coming by. Like he would, you know, he kind of figured out when she would be on the bus stop. And finally she said after two weeks, she was like, okay, I'll let you drive me home. And she was like, but I had him drop me off two streets up and like a street down from where we actually live. <laughs> she was like, there was no way I was going to tell him. Um, but yeah, they met. That's how they met. Um, my father came here. My, I think he came here in 73. Mm. First to New York and then to California. Um, and then, and he came because my uncle was here. His brother was here. Mm and had lived here. And so, and the story goes, and I write about this too, the story goes that my uncle had been, his wife worked for um, the U.S. Embassy. My aunt worked for the U.S., my aunt Duchess worked for the U.S. Embassy and they, in New York. And so she, she had been here for years. They had been here for years. And my uncle, um, someone in Ghana owed him money. And he called this person, he's in the U.S., he calls this person like, look, you know, I'm going to send my brother, my father, to go collect my money. And so my dad goes and collects the money or tries to collect the money. And the guy's like, I don't have money, but I can get your brother to America. I can get your brother, you know, a visiting visa to America. And so my uncle asked my dad, like, do you want to come? He's like, okay. And so that's the story is that the guy couldn't pay my uncle back, but he could get my father to come to the United States. So that's, that's one version of the story. I heard the real version last year, my uncle's version of the story, but that's my father's version of that story, okay. I'll say. Um, and my grandmother originally, you know, people have these really rich, wonderful stories about the great migration, um, leaving the South because of the racism to come to the North and the West. And my grandmother's story, I didn't find this out for a while, but my grandmother's story is actually, some part is about her trying to evade the racism in Arkansas, but the other part is her trying to leave my grandfather. And is this your maternal grandmother? Yes, this is my maternal grandmother. And she lied to my grandfather, he was abusive. So he, she lied to my grandfather and was like, oh, I'm gonna go for a visit visit my my um, brother and my sister. So my great aunt and my great uncle. My great uncle was in the military and ended up stationed in Oxnard, California, in Tour County. And she was like, I'm just gonna take the kids and we're gonna go visit. So that he doesn't think that he, she's trying to leave him permanently. And she does, she, she leaves with, the problem was she could only take four kids because the kids thought that they were coming back too. They were like, oh, we're just going for vacation. I don't really want to go. So one of my aunts and one of my uncles didn't want to come. But that was the initial plan was to leave him. And like a lot of women who are in abused relationships, that try didn't work. Mm -hmm. He ended up following her to California um, and bringing my other, my other aunt and uncle. But yeah, that was the story of how my folks first get to Los Angeles. I'm curious, Shamara, I mean, you know, you, you have already just done so many incredible things and what, 
where do you see we get past this pandemic? Let's look yeah. even further down like 15 years and what are you doing and who are you doing it with? So I will say the book, my book Cimarron has come out and it's about Stellar. Um, what? I, this is where I'm thinking like it'll it will have come out oh I was like oh really it has so come out okay. Okay. No, we're, we're all affirming that right now okay so great 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 um and I want to be curating art by black girls and black women um if I you know it would be great if it could be in Atlanta but my goal what the pandemic has shown me is that there are so many ways to curate also um beyond just in person. And I knew this before, but I feel like a lot of people weren't doing online um, exhibits. And I won't say a lot of people because institutions, museums have been doing them for a long time now, but a lot more artists are figuring out more ways to curate and, and have their art online digitally to curate that way. Um, but I want to be curating art by black women and girls. Mm. So visual art, audio so sound art um and performance art that would be my that's what i'm doing in 15 years oh, that's wow. what i'm getting paid to do i love that yes that, that's we'll so be there. we'll exciting. be there yeah yes. you yes. better believe it how do you measure success if i failed at something and i keep trying it again and get, getting better each time at it, right? So if I if I failed, you know, I think of it as how I approach writing. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get the crappy first draft out. Yeah. <laughs> and really like let the fear of writing something that's crap out. And then I get comfortable doing said thing mm-hmm. and honing my craft. So I get, and really it's not even honing, the, I feel like the honing of the craft comes when you let go of the fear. Because then you're letting letting go of like all the expectations. You're just you're getting in the use. You're getting in the habit of being in your zone. Mm-hmm. So that's how I know that I've become successful. I'm not afraid anymore. Ooh, I yeah, I heard this quote, and I'm not even going to be able to tell you the film I was watching, but it the guy was like, um, failure isn't the opposite of success. Failure is essential to success. And yes. If you've never failed at anything, then you've never tried anything. Tried at anything, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that idea of fear and I love that. Yeah. I'm not afraid anymore. Yeah. Hmm. That's success. Do you feel like people's perception of you aligns with who you are? And if, if I mean, or do you think think people get things wrong about you? Yes. And no. Um, so <laughs> I think most children get things right. And most adult get uh, most adults get things wrong. Um, <laughs> I just think children are much more perceptive than we give them credit for. Yep, yep. And I don't. I also don't lie to children. I'm a lot more likely to lie to an adult than I am to a child, um, honestly. But yeah, I think kids get me, and that's they usually get me because I'm, again, trying to be as honest and in the moment and present as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't say all adults, but I think 
a lot of people, my best friend told me that she's like, I thought you were so mean the first time I saw you. And I was like, why? She was like, cause you didn't smile. And I was like, okay, so now I'm mean cause I don't smile. All right. Um, but I think people definitely see like in the moment, I might not be like happy. I'm watching, I'm a watcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might read that wrong, but for the most part, I think people get it right. I'll say people that are perceptive get it right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I must be perceptive because. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, uh, yeah. First impressions. I was just like, who is this glorious human? Oh my <laughs> gosh. Um, is there, is there a character trait or attribute that you admire in other people no. that you wish you possessed? I like the people that can rapid fire off. Um, like after a person has been rude, like if somebody has been rude to, to you, yes. like I want to be the person yes. that can rapid fire yes. getting that person's butt and correct them. Yes. Like I want that. And not like seven days later being like, oh, I know the perfect thing I should have right. said. I'm, I hate right. that. Right. I want to be that. Yes. I want to be that person who is just like, nah. right. And not even in a really aggressive way. Just like an um, intelligent way, maybe like it's just like in a very matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. I want to, yeah. That I think whatever that character, you know, whatever that character trait is, yeah. that rapid response. Yeah, I like that. What's your biggest fear, and does it your biggest fear influence your work? Yeah, my biggest fear is perfection for good or for bad, that if it's perfect, that will always be the pinnacle of something that I do. Yeah. And if it's not perfect, it'll always be the thing that people come back to. Yeah. So the perfectionism, I think is the, mm. yeah, the biggest thing. Mm. So you and I, we've had some little texting back and forth during this crazy pandemic time. And as we're starting to come out of at least some of that a little bit, how, uh, how have you been just managing and coping with pandemic, racial unrest, all of these things coming to a head? What have, how have you been coping? Yeah, I haven't. Um, I've been pretending to be coping, honestly. Um, I've had four deaths in my family. One, um, one from COVID. Um, I think Vanessa, I told you about my cousin that was missing. Yeah. So it's, you know, I wish we made more space. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot, and you know, particularly the beginning of pan- the pandemic and quarantine, where a lot of people, regardless of where you worked or the kind of work you did, had to be in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a, a lot of people, at least that I knew, were reckoning with their emotions and being present with their emotions. A year in, though, like it's steamrolled and things have, you know, let's return to business as normal. Mm-hmm. And that business is normal that wanting, you know, let's have a meeting about the meeting. Let's, you know, do 85. Let's see how many Zooms we can squeeze in in a day. Um, yeah. I dialed a phone number the other day and I'm like, I haven't dialed a phone number in a year because right. 
every meeting, you're like, do we have to be on a Zoom every Can we call? Can we call? Like, yeah. Do I have to? Yeah. We haven't been, you know, it feels like we were making more space to grieve, mm -hmm. more space to just be with our emotions. Um, so I try mm -hmm. and carve out that time now. I mean, I put it in my syllabus with my students, like, look, for this semester in particular um, and for fall, we're not gonna work for capitalism's sake. Like we're not, I'm not gonna assign you a bunch of readings. I'm not gonna assign you a bunch of assignments. We're not gonna pretend like there's not a pandemic. We're not gonna pretend like people aren't getting the things that they need. We're not gonna be doing things just to be doing things in this class. And if that's what you want, you need to find another class. Because for me as a, you know, as a womanist, as a black feminist, as a feminist, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna pretend and lie and act like these things aren't a problem. We have to be able to face them. We have to be able to figure out and not face them. I mean, yes, face them largely and systemically, but also in our everyday life. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I think people always, um, my students in particular, I'm like, we're gonna learn about what it means, you know, women's gender and sexuality studies. We're gonna do this work analytically, but we're also gonna do this work in our lives. This praxis is important mm -hmm. and it informs the theory. So what good is it for me to have you read how capitalism devalues women and people of color's labor and then make all this labor for you <laughs> for no reason, right? Like we are going to do the analysis and the praxis. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to carve out space for me to do that practical work, which is feel, which is sit with, which is go to my altar, talk to my ancestors. I have to be able to center that mm. um, in my everyday. And so I try and carve out time every <laughs> single day where I do that and make space for that. It makes me think all, I mean, everything you're saying resonates so much. I have a mentor, Shelly, from my graduate program who said, I'm not going to tell my students, okay, work from your house, but don't be in your house. Your pets aren't allowed to be in the room. You have to set up your office. She's like, if, and, and what you're saying resonates with, you know, all these people having to work from home. And then all of a sudden your workplace is setting up a standard of how you live in your house mm -hmm. and where you work in the house and what's in your house to disrupt you. And Shelly's like, you need to go to the kitchen and get a snack. Take me with you. You, yeah. your cat jumps up on your lap, introduce me. Like yes. you're in your home, you're working from home and I'm not going to make you deny your space, your safe space. Mm -hmm. It gives me chills just thinking about what that means and how important it is that work has taken ownership of our private safe space. And, mm -hmm. it's like a, yeah. and now it's the new normal. I had students who would Zoom into class who had to go back to work because they were essential workers, right? Um, we're not getting paid overtime or hazard pay for working during a pandemic and work, you know, on Zoom in class at a restaurant, one of my students. So we're, we're having class. She's standing next to the walk-in freezer and was like, I'm on my 30, Dr. Kwachi, I'm here though. And I was like, cool, right? Wow. Because I know, like this, we're not, I, I don't, I also don't want you exactly, right? To pretend like you now have to close off these parts of your private mm -hmm. life. Like this is, I, I'm clear 
we are in, and we've been here for a long, this is, you know, the pandemic has definitely helped exacerbate and extend the crises that were all, already happening. Mm -hmm. But we're here. And I don't want to pretend like we're not here. Mm -hmm. I don't want to forget this moment. And it's not like I'm holding on to, to it, cleaving, like, please don't leave me pandemic. Please don't leave me COVID. But more so, this is the most honest and real we've had to be collectively across the board in a very, very long, I mean, probably in generations, like folks probably weren't even alive when some of these, you know, where we've all had to look at something and all had to pause in a particular way. So I'm not going to pretend that we're not all hurting, mm -hmm. that the most vulnerable of us aren't dying. Like, I'm, I'm just not going to pretend mm -hmm. like, you know, this is, this moment is okay. Like, and put a happy bandage on it. No. Yeah. Well, I, I've been having these conversations, uh, with my husband about all that you're talking about with having this time and this space right now to just evaluate and be still. And I'm a little, I'm starting to stress out a little bit about, you know, the pressure of coming out of it's, it's, yeah. I'm feeling the pressure yeah. now. Yeah. And, and yeah, so I, I think, I'm hoping that some some positive changes might come out of this eventually. Yeah. Just us uh, being able to recognize that we have been <laughs> slaves to capitalism. <laughs> very, very, I mean, like you know, for a long for generations, mm -hmm. generations and generations, right? Yeah. 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 We. Um, went to a march here early on Evan and I for artists when the civil rights uprising was big and everything was happening in Atlanta. Right. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, I have a, I have a lot of conservative family members. Uh -huh. uh, and the question is, you're a hypocrite. If you're staying in your house for the pandemic and say you can't work, but you're going to go march with what ended up being hundreds of people in the streets of Atlanta. Right. Right. In a mask, in the heat, and upon reflection with Evan, it's like, well, if we don't do this, then what are we trying to stay alive for? Like, you know, the pandemic, yeah, we're staying in because we don't want to die, but what are we living for if we're not fighting for what's right? We, I wish more than anything that this gives us nuance to be able to hold all of the things. Yeah. Right? Um, it's a pandemic and no people, you know, the critique might be no people shouldn't be outside um, gathering together in large crowds, but can we have the nuance and hold the nuance that this is so important that people are risking, right? In solidarity, their very lives to be in a space to collectively say like, this is too much. Mm -hmm. We are tired. Our spirits are, are worn, like we are tired. So we're, you know, can we hold all of these things? Can we have nuance? Nuance is what will save us. Hmm. Multiple things being true at the same time will save us. Is there any advice that's been given to you that would you would say is like the greatest piece of advice that you've ever been given? 
yeah, personally for me, feel everything mm. is the advice. Feel everything. Um, I am a touchy-feely person, but most people would never, so back to your question, like perception, I am a touchy-feely person. I am very in tune with my emotions and I want to express them, but I also know that it's not safe for me to express them all the time as a black woman as a queer person um as a fat person like I know right like I have to be able to feel and be present with my emotions Mm -hmm. so the feel everything is important because it reminds me that I'm alive Mm. it reminds me that I'm human but I also am fully aware that it's not okay for people like me to feel openly and publicly and what what might come at the cost of that but my advice is, you know, my friend, um, my, a lot of my friends, they will remind me, like, feel everything. I'll say, yes. Or I'll tell them, feel everything, to be present with yourself, mm-hmm. to sit with something and let, you know, like the feeling of, of it being heavy. Mm-hmm. Because the pretending and the going past and not sitting with it and trying to do something. And I get that as a coping mechanism. I completely understand it. And I also get it, you know, that it might not be safe to feel your feelings publicly, depending on where you are and who's around. But the suppressing them, the pushing them down, that's that's so much more troublesome to me than just allowing myself to be present with myself and feel. So this is a fun question I'm going to ask you before we we move on to the campfire section. If you could have billboards on the highways of our country, what would they say? Um, Fun question. That's a stressful question. How do you answer that? Right? Right? Um, Fun to ask, I guess. I would say believe Black girls. That says it all. And you're not the first person to say that on our podcast. Mm -mm. No black women. Yep. That was sure enough. What? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Shamara, are you, are you ready for our campfire? I am. I am. Campfire is a moment for our guests to share inspiration with our listeners and us. The campfire represents storytelling in an intimate setting that is unique to the people who are present. In our activism work, we refer to this as the closed container or circling. So what are you going to share today, Shamara? So I'm going to share a poem called Migration Part One. Um, It's a poem. So a little backstory. I am working on a book, an autoethnography entitled Cimarron. And Cimarron is a Spanish word that means wild and untamed. Mm. It's also the street that I grew up on in Los Angeles. Mm. And so I'm telling the stories of the people who are wild and untamed, Mm. right? In my life growing up. So the the book probably covers um, before my birth, because I tell other people's stories up until when we sell the house, the family house on Cimarron. And I was describing it today in a workshop Somebody said, like, what's something unique about your writing? And I said, I'm telling the story of the Black diaspora through my growing up. So I use snippets from my journal as a kid, um, as an adult, to kind of retell these stories. And so I'm going to tell migration part one 
is the story of how my grandmother, I'm imagining her last night in Arkansas before she gets on the bus to come to Los Angeles. And so this is one of the stories that opens the book. Mm. Migration, part one. I imagine the moon shines through the window into the small wooden house, the only bright light in the blue-black Arkansas night sky. Spring has sprung thick around the house and dotting the road you walk to work to cook and wash dishes at Cafe Uptown, where they would never take your money or service you if you were on the opposite side of the counter. Are the bird's foot violets rich with perfume? They've been whispering to you it's time. Black-eyed Susans remind you that you can't afford to look like them anymore. And the butterfly weeds remind you that summer is barreling towards you and that you must be gone before the August heat wilts them back into the earth. Your cold black eyes leave the moon and turn back to the bright spot on the floor that she provides. Promising you your, your bright spot, light, hope, a shedding, pack only what's necessary, only won't look like you plan to leave for good. At 14, you were not this girl. He, 18, on the verge of 19, was not this boy. You believed him when he told you he loved you. And you professed the same sweetly and freely. He almost believed it every time he said it, each time you said it. But now at 27, your deep cinnamon skin, two shades or so darker than the red clay earth where you were birthed, is covered in a light sheen of sweat. Anxious that at any moment he'll come in drunk, smelling of dark liquor in her. Or some other woman he's chosen for the evening, if, she too, if she's too busy entertaining someone else, maybe her husband. Thirteen years and six kids birthed from your hips and one child birthed from a different mistress. You can't keep track anymore of the rumors, of the bruises, of the beatings, of the lies, of the cycles. Tension building, acute violence, reconciliation, honeymoon, calm. Calmly, you told him, me, Kat, Lily, and Jewel, we're going to see Chris and Tui in California, a little trip to spend some time with my brother and sister. The kids can see their cousins, see California. It'll be educational for them. Expose them to something new, measured. He believes, too arrogant to believe you would leave, too arrogant to think you would want better for yourself, too arrogant to believe that there was better. Pack only what's necessary, only what won't look like you plan to leave for good. That means fear won't fit in the suitcase. You can't fold it in like the dollar bills you've been saving in the fake grease can below the sink, now flattened deep into your new pocketbook. Can't put it in the bag with the kids' clothes. Can't fold it in the fried chicken, fried pies, or biscuits in the brown paper bag lunches you plan to pack for the Greyhound. It won't fit. You go over the plan in your mind once again, wake up wash up, clothes ironed, wake up the kids, make them wash up, bags already packed, food already packed, five bus tickets, four children, one adult. You think about making Sandra and Drew come with you, but they don't want to go. Can't force them, otherwise it looks suspicious. You pray. Sand can help mama, Drew wants to help papa. Mama won't let her meet any harm. Papa will keep a watchful eye. I'll send for them before school starts. We'll send for them before school starts. Send for them before school starts. Amen. You open the window to look the moon square in her light. Close your eyes one more time to inhale the scent of whispers right with follow the light. You close the window, nose filled like the sky with the promise of her light. Fall deep asleep to the smell and wake up 
and don't exhale until CrossFit fades in the side view mirror of the bus, or so I imagine. That was lovely. Yeah. And I, you know, I asked my mother um, what, if anything, sorry, my, my printer is going off, y'all. I'm sorry. I don't know why. Um, okay, good. Um, I asked my mother what, if anything, she remembers from that night before they were supposed to come mm -hmm. to California. She's like, I don't remember really anything. Um, and I, I asked her how did granny seem and she didn't really remember. Um, she was like, she seemed a little nervous, but you know, she's like, I don't really remember. She's like, I attributed that to like us trying to get to the bus. You know, this was the first time they were traveling really. Um, and so, especially all of the four of them, five of them without my grandfather. So she was like, you know, I kind of chalked it up to that. And so I was like, I have to write this story about what it must have felt like for my grandmother to try and escape my grandfather and really planning to never come back. Did you meet this grandmother? Mm -hmm. My mother, I was her favorite grandchild. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, guys. Um, but I was, so I, she probably would say the same if she were with us, but only to me. Um, but I am definitely the grandchild that spent the most time with her. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother was somebody who was like, you will always know my, so I'm her firstborn's firstborn, her only child. So my mom's only child. So, you know, <laughs> from day one, my birth story is my grandmother is trying to drive my mother to the hospital. She's in labor and my grandmother is driving so slow because she's nervous that my, my mother like in labor is like, pull over to the side and let me drive. <laughs> So they get into this argument and she pulls over and she's like in labor driving to the hospital and my grandmother's on the other side. So these are, you know, these are the stories that I hear um, growing up about my birth and, and my grandmother is telling me and my mother's co-signing. So my grandmother independent, you know, with just she and I was a great storyteller. Mm. I don't know how other people saw her. Um, I think they think of her mother, so my great grandmother as a storyteller, because she was. She was the griot of the family. She kept stories about our family um, being enslaved. She would call the master's names. So she had those mm. stories. Um, but my, so she, my great grandmother was known as the storyteller, but my grandmother, like we spent so much time together. I got all of her stories. So. Yeah, I was like, let me piece together what what she, you know, my grandmother is a woman who had six kids by the time she was 24. Oh my God. <gasps> right, first at, 15, first at 15, my mother, um, 15 or 16. And oh yeah, so had ha been having babies for years and enduring abuse for years mm. so I was like let me try and piece this together and I knew my grandfather I didn't know him um well as a kid but I knew enough because he didn't come around by the time I'm born they're, they're separated um and he didn't come around but I knew enough to know when he did come around how everybody kind of shifted the energy mm. would shift in the room um 
and by the time I'm writing this, I know enough about my grandfather to, <laughs> to, to fill in kind of some of the things. But yeah, I was like, I want to write this piece from her point of view. Mm-hmm. There would be no Cimarron. There would be no story without, you know, that origin story of us coming to Los Angeles and how we get there. And I wanted to tell the truth for, because for the longest time, it wouldn't be until I was damn near an adult that somebody, my mother finally told me the, the longer story. So the short abridged version was my grandfather got a better opportunity in Los Angeles for work, right? Like that's how we get to LA from Arkansas. This is how we get. Um, and years later, it was like, well, he didn't get that job until he follows your grandmother here after she had tried to leave, right? Like, so then it starts to unravel. And I hear this longer story, mm. this more detailed story. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Shamara. I can't wait for Cimarron to come out and be the bestseller. I think it will be less than 15 years. <laughs> you too. I do too. I do too. <laughs> the goal is to have, um, you know, I'm, it's not a traditional academic book and it's much more me tapping into my creative, much more me creatively playing with theory, mm-hmm. um, creatively playing with black feminist theory, creatively playing with, um, performance studies, performance theory, with qualitative research methods. Like this is a, this is me taking everything, the training that I've received, the research that I've done and putting it into a a piece that I feel like that I actually wanna write, that I'm excited about writing, that I enjoy. And because universities are cheap a little bit, not a little bit, they are. Um, You know, this research budget that I don't have, (laughs) that they took from us during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This is research that I can do and I have access to and I have means to do where I don't have to take on the financial burden of getting my research done. Like I tell students, graduate students, I'm like, look, academia is a very much pay or play game. Like you have to be damn near middle-class coming in here to be faculty and students are like huh like no this is you know you get a job you're expected to pay up front to move yourself from wherever you are in the country I don't know how many graduate students can do that you know if they get a tenure track job or something like that right like Mm -hmm. who can pay up front um to do that so this this also felt like me kind of giving the thumbing my nose at the ways in which folks you know, think about and go about doing research and the capitalist nature of academic research. So, mm-hmm. Samaran is my baby. Mm. I can't wait to meet your baby. Me <laughs> either. <laughs> um, I get to ask you your rapid response questions. Yes. Okay. It. <laughs> I'm ready. We all feel like we're famous when we do the Lipton rapid yes. response questions. Yes. Right. <laughs> we right. all get to be a movie star for a second. Right. Um, are you ready? I, okay, I am. What is your guilty pleasure? Oh gosh, YA lit. Oh, like, oh. okay. I love, and probably like youth geared shows, 
So I love and hate grownish simultaneously. Um, like I get in, I'm on IG, like getting into, they'll post a clip from an episode I just watched. And I'm like, this was horrible. You know, like I'm the old millennial or like Gen X. I'm like right in, in the sweet spot of both. Uh-huh. This was horrible. Or this was great. Why didn't you do more with that? So I'm that like crotchety old lady. So Ellen Hagen, one of our, like, uh, I think our second guest, if you listen to her podcast, she wrote a middle grade novel in verse that just got published called Reckless Glorious Girl. (laughs) I can't wait to read it. My My mom ordered it. She listened to the podcast, ordered the book. She's so excited. So I have to read that. Have you read Poet X? No. So, so like all of, so anything that has to do with YA, I am about. Um, yeah. Elizabeth Acevedo writes uh, The Poet X and it's, it's all in verse and it's amazing. I'm taking notes. I'm <laughs> sorry. This was supposed to be rapid response. <laughs> I know. Like this is, this is honestly like YA is my, oh. So good. Okay. Perfect. What's your favorite sound? The ocean. Mm. The ocean and a palm tree. Like there's, there's a sound that in particular Los Angeles palm trees make, but I'll allow it for all palm trees, but there's a sound that they make um, that's very common, but that in the ocean. Mm. What's your favorite curse word? MF. Oh. <laughs> oh, it makes me happy. Like cue Bernie Mac, he's a comedy. <laughs> Like that, I mean, he breaks it down in his segment, how it's a noun, an adjective, like it just makes me happy. <laughs> it makes me, ha- and so my mother's best friend is, is an English, she's retired now, is an English teacher. And she, as a kid, she has like, she had this Southern, but also very proper and then kind of LA mixed in. So she's from Mississippi. So like it was, proper southern but also los angeles like everybody that i grew up with was from the south and migrated um it's but maddie had this very proper and still does has this very proper like pronunciation of words she's also an english teacher right so language is, is important and she would tell us me and her daughter not to say things like finna fixed into or ain't, ain't a word and then i would hear her curse <laughs> Like she, it would be like super proper and, and somebody would try and, I remember we were at the grocery store one time and somebody tried to cheat her. And it was like watching a performance, like the way she said MF. <laughs> like still to this day, I, I actually, so that might also be a favorite sound is hearing her say MF because it's so, it's perfect. <laughs> so good. My. My nanny used to say, shit, shit. I'm like, you're saying shit, nanny. We can hear you. And now my mom says it. I'm like, mom, you're saying shit. Just say it. Oh my God. It's, it's the best. It, so I had to learn. I, I tell people, um, you know, I had to learn how to defend myself. And one way, you know, I didn't want to fight physically, but if I had to, I would. But the, the best way to circumvent having to fight physically as a kid was to be able to cuss like a grown up. Mm-hmm. And I modeled my cursing 
after Maddie. And you, it, I mean, it still saves me to this day, I think. When, I, if, if somebody like, you know, a couple times, um, like somebody was trying to like get too close or be in my space. So I'm out in public or, you know, like guys will graze. Uh-huh. And I just turn that, just turn that Maddie on, turn that MF on and people will take you seat. Like she might, she might actually be able to fight. <laughs> like I might not want to mess with her. Great. Okay. Oh so this leads me perfectly to this question. If you were to have a disclaimer, what would it say? <laughs> Ooh, don't, my best friend, don't poke the scorpion. Ooh. <laughs> Scorpio. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, what do you want said about you after you're gone? <sighs> that she loved her people, that mm-hmm. she loved black people, that she loved queer people, that she loved women, that she loved anybody that was anywhere supporting, you know, the most marginalized of us. She loved trans people. She loved, like she loved Yes. Deeply and openly loved. Yeah. Okay, my final question. What's your superpower? So the superpower I wanted as a kid was to be able to speak all the languages in the world, ancient and contemporary. Even, um, yeah, like, just any even made up languages that people could have made like pig latin things like any language you could think of i wanted that superpower um that's a cool superpower i've never heard that, that. Is. i think that's so that's the one that i want the current superpower i have a really good ability to make people feel like they can tell me anything yes you do for good or for bad Yes, um, <laughs> it's been some bad ones where I'm like, please let me go. I, I, I have to listen because I'm a people pleaser and I'm an empath, but please let me leave here. <laughs> holding me hostage. Um, but yeah, I have, I have the ability to make people feel warm, make people feel welcome and make people feel open. Mm. I don't take it. granted and I don't take it lightly that is so true and I think it's it's one of your I mean it is it is one of your greatest gifts with all of these other uh lovely inspiring um things that you have that you bring to the table Shamara I think that's what we were talking about with just kind of that sense of ease when you you know came into the girl project and it just felt so easy is is exactly that so thank you for coming on to our podcast yes thank you guys for having me this was amazing i appreciate it i appreciate it hey ampers it's margaret mcladry your voices amplified research and advocacy director let's take amped action by checking out some of the sources of inspiration that shamara mentioned during her episode First off, we have this fire quote from Alice Walker. Womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. To explore some more of her incisive work beyond the color purple, which is the novel that has uh, garnered her so much well-deserved acclaim uh, through its popularity in different film adaptations, 
Ellis Walker also has written poems, essays, short fiction, and other standalone novels like The Third Life of Range Copeland, Meridian, In Love and Trouble, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, Living by the Word, and my personal favorite, You Can't Keep a Good Woman Down. Shamara also told us about the work of Katie Geneva Cannon, an American Christian theologian and ethicist associated with womanist theology and black theology. I've been a huge fan of Dr. Cannon since I read her edited volume entitled Womanist Theological Ethics, a reader that she edited with Angela D. Sims and Emily M. Towns. Specifically, one of the chapters that Katie Geneva Cannon contributed to this edited volume on the perspective of Oliver C. Cox, who is a contemporary of W.E.B. Du Bois, who took a much more uh, radical stance on racism and economics than uh, was acceptable at the time, really closely connecting capitalism with the institution of slavery. So again, the book is Womanist Theological Ethics, a reader edited by Katie Geneva Cannon, Angela D. Sims, Emily M. Towns, to give you a great introduction to the work of Dr. Cannon and womanist theology as a perspective. Uh, another book that Shamara discussed was her own work, an edited volume with Ruth Nicole Brown called Wish to Live, the Hip Hop Feminism Pedagogy Reader. She also talked about the work of uh, Dr. Ruth Nicole Brown in general with Soul Hot, Saving Our Lives, Hearing Our Truths. Ruth Nicole Brown is a professor and the inaugural chairperson of the Department of African American and African Studies at Michigan State University. And some of her other books include the fantastic Black Girlhood Celebration, Toward a Hip Hop Feminist Pedagogy, and Here Are Truths, The Creative Potential of Black Girlhood. Finally, Shamara directed us to, toward the uh, novel in verse called The Poet X, a New York Times selling bestseller by an award-winning slam poet, Elizabeth Acevedo, about an Afro-Latina heroine who tells her story with blazing words and powerful truth. Go take some amped action and see you next time. And that's a wrap. Thank you listeners and our guest for sharing the space with us. If you don't want to miss our next episode and you'd like to follow our work, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Voices Amped. Voices Amped is part of our arts activism initiative, Voices Amplified. Our team is me, Jenny Benavides, Vanessa Becker-Weig, Ellie Clark, Dr. Margaret McGladry, and our intern and editor, Kennedy Johnson. If you have any questions that you'd like to hear from future guests, or if you ever have questions for us, hit us up on social media or email us on our website, voicesamplified.net. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, you can watch all of our interviews on YouTube if you search and subscribe to Voices Amplified. We'd like to thank Lauren Rourke for our podcast art, Tiffany DuPont Novak for our logo design, and Vanessa Davis for her beautiful underscore, I'm doing okay. You can follow her music at Songwriter Vanessa. We'll see you next time, everyone. Voices Amped is generously sponsored by the Kentucky Foundation for Women. For more information about our guests, podcast content, or if you want to learn more about Voices Amplified, follow our advocacy work or support our 2021 independence campaign. You can visit our website, voicesamplified.net, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise.